0: Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today?
1: I'm Jim Dandy.
2: I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends.
0: First, up being controversies and nontroversies, We take a look at the cheery assessment from music historian and cultural commentator Ted Joya. That, uh, hold on, let me check my notes here. Uh, quote, 2024 may be the most fast-paced and dangerous time ever for the creative economy, end quote. And why, quote, entertainment is dead, end quote. All right, we'll, we'll explain what that means here in a second. Joya starts off by trying to reorient our current understanding of popular culture. Most people think of the popular culture as something like a choice, a fork in the road. One way lies, quote, art, The other way lies, quote, entertainment. And this is incorrect, however. Most culture is kind of like a food chain, right? And entertainment is eating and has been eating art. Entertainment, the world of movies, uh, for example, which we focus on here. Think uh, Marvel, tentpole blockbusters, etc. Entertainment has more or less entirely consumed the oxygen afforded to creative production. However, things are going to get much worse because we've probably reached peak entertainment as a concept. The number of scripted TV shows is in decline. The number of major movie studios is contracting. The number of theatrical releases is in decline. If entertainment is eating art, then distraction is eating entertainment. Now, what is distraction, right? It's the era of TikTok and YouTube, of Twitter clips and Instagram reels. Here's Joya again, quote, this is more than just the hot trend of 2024 it can last forever because it's based on body chemistry, not fashion or aesthetics, end quote. Well, what's he mean here? He is talking about the dopamine loop. People are literally getting addicted to this sort of distraction-based viewing. Don't believe me? Think about how you consume social media, if you consume it. There's always just one more video to flip through, one more reel to watch, one more clip, just like the one you just enjoyed. Don't go, stay here, soak in it. Take your take your soma, just stay here. Just it's it's fun. One more video. What's you're gonna scroll down the feed a little more, you're gonna find another video. It's so much fun. You're gonna watch it, it's gonna be great. Addiction is now the bigger fish eating distraction, which is consuming entertainment, which has cannibalized art. Quote. The tech platforms aren't like the Medici in Florence or those other rich patrons of the arts. They don't want to find the next Michelangelo or Mozart. They want to create a world of junkies because they will be the dealers, end quote. This level of distraction and addiction is harmful. It keeps people from appreciating their families, their friends, their lives. Reported levels of happiness are on the decline around the Western technologized world. Uh, And at least part of that is because we are strapped to machines 24-7 designed to... Keep us looking at them and fiddling with them and not paying attention to the world around us. Peter, is this all too pessimistic? Or should we learn to stop worrying and love the ADD
2: bomb? Sonny, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't I couldn't follow you. I just I had to check my well, there were several things I had to check. I was looking at my phone. What were you? What was that about? I saw you scrolling. I saw you, that's fine. It was something important. I forget what it was, but it was pretty, pretty dang important, and I missed what you said. What, no, look, I, I think there is some real truth to this, um, and I also think it is overstated. So. I want to take you guys back to, uh, to the post-war era in the United States. And this was the time when television was first becoming a major media force and in many ways was replacing radio. If you go and look at time use surveys in the post-war era, a couple of things happened. You saw that Americans suddenly had a huge amount of additional leisure time uh, because of the rising middle class, the boom in home appliances that just made uh, working around the house and keeping up a house, doing things like the dishes or shopping because you had uh, suddenly a mass refrigeration and, and freezing, um, doing, the, doing the, the, the laundry, which if you go back to 1900 or so before the washing machine, um, it was just very, very common for middle and even upper middle class women who didn't have a lot of help to spend one whole day doing the laundry. And suddenly they didn't. Right. And so just there was just a, a mass amount of leisure time that people had to fill. And what did they spend it doing? just watching television. They were watching three-network television, which, yes, some of it was great and wonderful and we can look back with fondness on the just, but, man, a lot of that stuff was really trashy, time-filling junk. And it was kind of kind of designed as trashy time-filling junk. It needed to be just entertaining enough to hook the maximum number of people, not actually all that smart. It assumed that you weren't really going to be paying attention. Maybe you were going to be doing maybe you were going to be doing the laundry. Maybe you are going to be do, uh, uh, the soap operas in particular were very specifically designed for homemakers to watch while they were doing their chores. And also a lot of these things, you know, they were also, as we know, before uh, the sort of Netflix streaming model, the HBO model, most American television was designed so that uh, uh, with the expectation that viewers wouldn't watch most episodes, right? Like so or would certainly wouldn't couldn't be counted on to watch every single episode. So you couldn't tell uh, a long story that needed uh, that needed people to concentrate over the course of, say, eight or 13 episodes. And. In many ways, this was viewed by sort of the culture mavens and the intelligentsia and the sort of smart people who were very concerned about society at the time as like a terrible thing, as like television was rotting people's minds. And you just go back and read the sort of the. I don't know, the the bookish like set from that era from the 60s through the 1980s. And you heard this constantly. Television was the idiot box. There was an FCC chairman who gave a, a, a big memorable speech. I'm now just forgetting N- Minnow N- Minnow. about how Minnow who gave the speech about how um, television was a vast wasteland. And this to me reads like a, a the vast wasteland speech but for the internet era. There was, in fact, something really true about Minow's view of television. It was kind of a lot of junk. But what was really interesting is if you go back and you look at that, that exact speech singled out three types of shows, police shows, gangster shows, and westerns. And what were the three types of, the three HBO shows that sort of founded the golden era of television? The Wire, a police show. The Sopranos, a gangster show. And Deadwood a Western. And over time, television found a way to become more intelligent, to promote more concentration, to become more complicated. And also the criticism of television, you know, sort of in that post-war era was, I think, just overblown even at the time. And so I I don't want to say Ted Joy is just totally wrong here. I think there is I think there is a real like it's obviously the case that TikTok just sort of plays on a kind of instinct to never to never pull away. I'm not on TikTok for a reason. I don't watch, you know, a lot of the very short videos. I don't find all of that interesting. Um, but I also think that to simply dismiss all of it as this is distraction eating everyone's brains and it's like a drug. Uh that is That view is not going to hold up 20 or 30 years from now. And in fact, I suspect that what's going to happen is that 20 or 30 years from now, we're all going to have iPhones strapped to our faces all the time. And whatever the kids are into, it will be something that seems much worse. And there will be a fondness for this era when content was home, was created by hand, by individuals rather than by AI. When when influencers, you know, actually could, be, could make middle class livings by like talking into the camera and having authentic relationships relationships with their viewers and like this, this sort of thing there's always a cycle of this sort of thing but it's just i don't want to say oh there's absolutely nothing to this there really is at the same time i think it's it's somewhat overstated and there is we often see this sort of this cycle of middle-aged adults who don't like it maybe don't get it are worried about the kids these days thinking well this generation they're just ruining their brains and it, it keeps working out so, uh, Alyssa, I, I I just
0: listened to that whole thing that Peter said without looking at my phone once somehow, and yet I think it's worth pointing out that he did not at any time actually discuss the videos in question. He did he didn't really address. The the issue of like what we're actually talking about. He said, "Well, things in the past people complained about, and we'll complain about things in the future, and it all kind of works out." But like, I, I don't I don't know that that's the case. I can't see the future. Also, uh, the the people in the past weren't wrong about TV. The TV in the past was very bad. And you know, stultifying and and uh, relatively useless. So I I'm curious to get you if, if you'd like to talk about, you know, the actual the actual dopamine rush that, you know, is is the issue here.
1: I feel like there are two questions to be teased out here when we're talking about the entertainment that people consume today. And the first is the content that's being made for a particular platform, right? And I actually just finished reading David Camp's Sunny Days, which is about the sort of the mid-century children's television revolution, which among other things was enabled and supported in part by Newton Minow, whose Fast Wasteland speech has sort of been mischaracterized. I mean, that phrase is unbelievably memorable. But, you know, he really believed in the potential of television. And put a fair amount of time and effort into supporting the shows that became things like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You know, he was critical of the medium because he believed it was capable to do better within it. And there was this remarkable quality revolution. You know, I mean, arguably, this sort of the 60s and 70s are to children what, you know, the late 90s and early aughts were to adults' television on HBO. There was this, you know, remarkable, thoughtful, quality revolution um, that was you know, built in the science of childhood development. It was capable of doing all of those things in the media. So part of the question we're faced with today is whether it's possible to make non-garbage for something like TikTok. And I think obviously it's possible to make non-garbage, right? I mean, my colleague Dave, Dave Jorgensen at the Washington Post has become this sort of revolutionary media innovator by figuring out a way to have a funny TikTok presence and communicate about the news in a way that is also completely sort of consistent with the Washington Post brand of journalistic excellence. And that's cool. I think the question that Joya, and to an extent we're all struggling with, is whether there's something qualitatively different about the medium of social media and the responses it elicits in our brains, right? I mean, you know, television didn't used to run 24 hours a day, right? Like there was a test pattern. um, There wasn't enough programming. It stopped. And, you know, arguably... We solved that
2: problem. That's progress.
1: (laughs) Solved that problem. It's progress. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I think the, you know, the question of whether sort of the infinite scroll and the, the combination of the sort of the shrinking of the material with the infinite scroll with the algorithm, is somehow, you know, different than television, right? I mean, I think obviously concentrating on an hour of Tokyo Vice or Shogun, which I'm really looking forward to, it's just, it's a different mode of consumption than consuming a second video. It's um And the sort of level of personalized programming, the ability to keep you in a very dedicated ecosystem... And then there's the fact that television is not talk back to you the way that social media does, right? I mean, you're not sort of functionally part of the show. You could go participate in online and in-person social experiences that were about processing television, about processing the movies, the whole idea of the water cooler television episode where it's like you just have to get to work for so the next day and have this real-world social interaction or you have to go read your favorite recapper or, you know, there's a sort of mode of extended analysis there. And in social media, sort of the product is you, right? Like you're the person generating the content and TikTok, Instagram, et cetera, are this sort of weird hybrid, like you're making the content, you're posting the videos. You're also being sort of acted on by other users, the algorithm. And even if it's on a spectrum, it seems to me like books and movies and television and you know the sort of bastard child of social media and video, just obviously work on your brain somewhat differently. And relatedly, you know, there's there's a huge difference between a monoculture or a sort of semi-monoculture where you have these experiences at home, but then sort of complete them in the social world, and then vanishing hermetically into the scroll
0: right yeah 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 no i think that's i think that's a key distinction here right yes. is that is that it's not it's not simply there's a difference between a broadcast medium where it's like here's the thing you watch it or you don't here's here's what there is and there's even a difference between that and the world of streaming kind of where, you know, there there are algorithmic pressures there, but it's still like, here's what we have. You can watch it or you don't.
1: And you're not and then, the product in quite the same way.
0: Exactly. And the 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 way that something like TikTok or again, Instagram and to a certain extent Twitter and and the and basically every social media site at this point, it's not just a broadcast medium where it's like Here's the thing, choose to watch it or don't. It's like, here are things that will keep you here for as long as we possibly can. And it will hurt, literally it will literally hurt your brain to make you go away from them. There is an actual addictive quality to these things. It is it is shown up in brain scans of people. You take you take the device away from them. Their pleasure centers go, no, wait, bring it back. Bring bring it back. I want it back. And I like, I think look, I think that is there's a qualitative. And what uh, turns into a quantitative difference as well, because once you start really getting into these things, you just stay there for a long, long time.
1: I think it's good to have leisure time. I think it's, you know, it's good to have labor-saving devices. Um, You know, as long as my Roomba doesn't join the robot revolution and kill me, like, I'm very glad not to have to vacuum my downstairs. My kids are a disaster. Um, But I struggle with the idea that, like, short-form video content is in, you know, in isolation, you know, something that can be done well or poorly can be done from you know, ends high or low. But I struggle with the form. And if there is one cause for optimism, I think, you know, I understand why people who work in television are upset about sort of consolidation in the streaming industry and the entertainment industry. But pulling back a little bit and allowing us to have a cultural conversation about mainstream culture that's slightly less fragmented would kind of be a good thing. I mean, it would be good to return to the era of television shows as sort of big social experiences. And not just because I miss recapping Game of Thrones because that was super fun. But the sort of the displacement of social life and sort of offline life and real world life, the idea that you can live the like, the whole experience of whatever you're consuming sort of in the hermetic enclosure of the app is quite unattractive to me. And I really, I mean, Peter, I have to say, like, maybe it's inevitable that we'll all walk around with iPhones attached to our places. But I just feel really repulsed by that vision. I really, really hate it. And I struggle with the extent to which I feel like it's time to make some really countercultural choices in my life and my family's life. I don't entirely know how to do it.
2: Direct to brain podcasting is going to be so big and we're all going to have to get the little implants so that we can just share our thoughts with not only with each other, but directly with our listeners. Everybody's going to know exactly what Sonny is thinking the entire time.
1: What if we just did like a lot of live shows?
2: I'm for it. Nobody, you wouldn't
0: even have to be there. You could just, we could just broadcast it straight to everybody's brain.
2: I want to make a couple of really quick points in response to all this. So like I said, number one, I I think there is something to this. I think a a lot of the content, maybe even the vast majority of the short form video content, especially on TikTok is kind of junk all more or less by design. That's what the form uh, encourages. I'm not sure I think that that's all true. And again, I'm not someone who is on TikTok. So I see the YouTube examples of this, the Instagram examples, much more than I see the actual TikTok examples. It's a little hard for me to com- comment on that directly, even though I guess here I am. Number two, one thing that Joya doesn't talk about in this is the uh, video games. And video games are a huge part of youth culture. And they are also built on, all, uh, many of those games, I should say, are built on some of the same sort of gambling-like dopamine responses. There's a phrase in video game design called the core loop, uh, which is sometimes summarized as 30 seconds of fun, right? It's the idea of sort of, this is the thing that y- you keep repeating and keep doing that uh, that is enjoyable. Um, that's a, a very reductive uh, explanation. P- please listen I, I know that, that uh, Core Loop actually means much more than that, but I, I don't have time to to explain all of it on this podcast today. But you look at what's going on in the video game world. There are games that are coming out that demand not just dozens, but in some cases, hundreds of hours of incredibly complex attention and remembering and, and focus of a kind that TV and movies, are, it's just a totally different thing. It's not like books. It's but, not like.
1: But attention, remembering and focus are antidotes to the infinite scroll. Right, they're yes. The idea that everything is disposable, that... and this is kind of what I'm saying is yeah. that if you
2: go back and look at the early video games, go back and look and look at Pong or even Mario Brothers, some of the stuff that we sort of now look back with great uh, kind of nostalgic fondness, or sort of the beginnings of the art form. That stuff was all really pretty simplistic, and and again, it was a a medium that through the 80s and 90s people thought was just rotting kids' brains. And there were, I mean, then it also got hyper violent, and people got mad about that on Capitol Hill. Boy. I can tell you a lot about Senator Joe Lieberman's being upset with Mortal Kombat and also Reservoir Dogs. Um, But again, another podcast. And the medium has grown into something that is far more complex. As the people who were in some ways hooked on it in, as kids, as the, the you know the smartest and and most interesting of those people went into that field, they turned games into something that was deeper and had more just had had more going on. And I think you just see that now with everything from some of the big narrative uh, RPGs like Baldur's Gate 3 to the super complex you know sort of open world games like Elden Ring, which it doesn't even have quest markers. Like you just have to kind of keep the whole thing in your head or take notes. It's crazy. I can't play that game, it's actually it's too hard and too complex, even for me to keep in my head because I'm a dummy and I don't even watch TikTok. And then the third thing that I just want to say is, Alyssa, your reaction, I think, is really telling you are talking about making big countercultural moves. And this is the thing I also think that Ted Joya is underrating here. Uh, and not that he's not aware of this because he's kind of doing this and leading a movement or, or sort of trying to sort of be a, a kind of guru. In the, and I mean this in a neutral to even good way, his space, right? Like he's trying to sort of teach and show people how to do this themselves is a lot of people, I think even folks younger than us are going to look at the world of endless, kind of worthless distraction and say, I don't want that, at least not to the extent that it provides me with no sort of substantive, thoughtful value. And to me, when I look at dissident culture for young people under 25, to the extent that obviously I'm an old man with no kids, but like to to the extent that I have any kind of view into these are the smart, weird kids. And I, I was a smart, weird kid, right? And who felt like I was an outsider. Uh, maybe not smart, but I was certainly I was a weird outsider kid who didn't like who didn't like sort of mainstream culture. The the outsider kids who are kind of interesting, they're all like, this digital stuff is rotting our brains. We got to do something else. Even though they're also saying that online. Uh, yeah. But like they're, they're, they are looking for alternatives and they are going to create them. And when they are, when they are at the top of the economy and the to- and the top of the pop culture pyramid in their Mid 30s through their mid 50s, the the world is going to reflect their concerns as much as it is going to reflect the outlook of the people who were just totally hooked on the worst of TikTok. Okay, we're we're running
0: long, so I'm going to pull it short here. The the only thing I will say in addition to to all the rest of this is that one thing we have to think of, uh, at least from Joy's perspective, right, is that it's not just about individual choices can only do so much. Yeah. His concern is that the the broad I mean, essentially the engines of cultural capitalism are what is pushing us towards all of these things, and that there's only so much you can do to fight against that sort of thing. It's one thing, you know, Hollywood used to pour resources into things like Coppola movies, right? And now Coppola has to sell his winery to make Coppola movies. Uh, Yeah, but that movie is is a mess.
2: No no smart
0: person would finance
2: that, except for the fact that it's Coppola.
0: And instead, instead now, the, the companies are pouring their money into... The whatever program will send you the most Mr. Beast videos in the shortest amount of time. So, I mean, that's, you know, whatever. That's 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 just the parting thought. Everyone should read Ted Joya's piece. All right, uh, so what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non that our tech overlords are using their dopamine addiction to enslave us to our screens? Peter? I think it's
2: less of a controversy than other people think.
0: Alyssa?
1: It's obviously a controversy. Don't develop a dissociative personality disorder. Get off your phone.
0: It's a controversy. The only thing you should use your phone for is listening to the Across the Movie Aisle podcast and maybe some of the other Bulwark podcasts, I don't know, but mostly across the movie aisle. All right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday, in which we're going to discuss the Criterion channels, the the streaming service of the Criterion Collection, uh, March lineup of movies that won Razzies, yet still deserve to be celebrated because the Razzies are dumb and bad for film culture, almost as bad for film culture as TikTok is for the culture writ large. Uh, And now on to the main event. Drive-Away Dolls. Directed by Ethan Cohen and co-written with his longtime wife, who also happens to be a lesbian. I, you guys can explain that relationship to me, uh, if, oh, if I we, can't if explain that to. relationship <laughs> to you. <No. laughs> once, once we get once we get in, uh, Trisha Cook, uh, Drive Away Dolls is what we might describe as a lesbian neo noir, as imagined by one half of the team that made some of the great neo noirs of our age, movies like Blood Simple and The Big Lebowski. Uh, Drive Away Dolls stars Margaret Qualley as Jamie and Geraldine Viswanathan. Sorry, I'm butchering that Marion, uh, a pair of lesbians who have had it with life in Philadelphia and want to move to warmer climes. Specifically, Tallahassee, Florida, which is where Marion's aunt lives. Uh, after Jamie breaks up with her girlfriend, Suki, uh, who's played by Beanie Feldstein, Jamie and Marion decide to avail them- themselves of Curly's drive away service, which is basically you drive a car from one place to another uh, at the behest of someone who needs it delivered for them, in this case, Philly to Tallahassee. Turns out they have absconded with a car destined for gangsters. In the trunk rests a mysterious briefcase and a box with a head inside. What's in the briefcase? why were the why was the previous owner of that briefcase relieved of his head what does all of this have to do with a pair of lesbians trying to get out of dodge and a, a senator apparently uh, every once in a while i see a movie i do sometimes every once in a while every once in a while i see a movie and realize with like near certainty as i am watching it that in a few months maybe a few years, it's going to become an object of cult fascination. For instance, Under the Silver Lake was a movie that I both didn't fully get on first view, but instantly recognized like there are going to be people who pour over this forever. It's going to be a hangout staple. turns out I was one of them. Uh, The vibes were just there. And that's basically, precisely how I felt while I was watching Drive-Away Dolls. It is a movie that relies on fast-paced dialogue and quick-tongued actors to keep things moving, but it doesn't have the big comic set pieces of something like a hangover or wedding crashers or an animal house. Um, To describe it as subtle is wrong, and again, we can discuss that here in a minute, but it's the sort of movie that only is going to work after a couple of viewings, I think. The the repartee between Marianne and Jamie, uh, the bickering relationship between the two goons who are sent to track them down, and even poor Curly, played by the great Bill Camp, uh, who is both brusque and kind of put upon in his role as the drive service runner. I could not single out any particular line of dialogue right now for you as an instant classic, but then I couldn't have done that after my first viewing of The Big Lebowski either. And that's kind of what this movie calls to mind. No surprise, since it's made by one of the Coen brothers himself. Uh, Margaret Qualley's Jamie is like a long lost daughter of raising Arizona's H.I. McDonough. Uh, the goons uh, who are chasing them throughout the film call to mind the kidnappers from Fargo. Marianne's Sexual awakening seen in flashback uh, of a naked woman in the neighbor's backyard uh, really brings to mind a serious man. Again, like there are just echoes of all the different Coen brother movies that have kind of grown on people over the years all of which is to say I'm not surprised this movie is doing disastrously with audiences. CinemaScore audiences gave it a C, which is a horrendous, terrible score. You don't want that. That's bad news. Uh, But Hail Caesar got a C-, and it's one of the five best movies the Coen brothers have ever made. Raising Arizona, now considered a classic, got a very mediocre B. Uh, The Big Lebowski didn't get pulled, but I don't think I need to remind anyone what a slow burn that movie was. And that's basically where I think Drive-Away Dolls is going to fall. It's subtly funny in ways that are going to be burnished by repetition and will almost certainly Emerge as a cult comedy classic in the next few years. For what it's worth, I'm just talking about the reception of it and its possible future reputation. For what it's worth, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. I enjoyed the immersion into this lesbian subculture. Uh, the movie is far, far raunchier than anything else I can remember in the Cohen brothers' body of work, um, and it's one that I, it's a movie I can imagine will make some folks uh, uncomfortable. The the revelation of what's in the briefcase, the solution to the noir mystery, is absolutely ridiculous. And not necessarily in the good way, like you want. Like, I don't, I don't, it feels perfunctory in a way that I don't think entirely works. Uh, but I also just didn't really care because this is a hangout movie. None of these movies are about the actual mystery, it's just about hanging out with these people. And I enjoyed hanging out with Marianne and Jamie. I thought Jamie was hilarious. She cracked me up repeatedly. Uh, Alyssa, I got the sense over text that you did not care for these people and you did not enjoy hanging out with them.
1: Yeah. So, for some context, I started high school in 1998. This movie is set in 1999, I think. 1999. And, you know, did a lot of, like, high school gay rights activism at a time when that was, like, a sort of marginal, weird thing to be doing. Like, when high school teachers, and like, in my Massachusetts high school, Massachusetts presented as, like, the sort of, you know, like lesbian Mecca, like women can get married there and driveway dolls when, you know, high school teachers were still putting like safe space stickers with pink triangles on their doors to let them know that like, you know, if you like, if you needed a place to talk about like being gay or thinking you might be gay, that that was like a safe place to go and it would be confidential. I had a friend whose father like kicked her out of the house when she, you know, started dating her girlfriend and like moved in. With her girlfriend's family, and they're like they're married, they have two kids. I believe the father and daughter are reconciled now, but like, you know, I was a teenager in the era that this movie is depicting, and I found being plunged into this sort of cutesy, like kind of soft porn lesbian, but there's also like a shooting that's inspired by a homophobic dispute. I I found being Plunged back into this milieu, like it's just in this vibe about young gay women. I found it like really acutely unpleasant, and in a weird way, I think like I am maybe more the target movie for this audience than either of you, and yet I found it. I found the whole thing really off-putting. Like I, I, um, you know, the movie. I did not know sort of the backstory to the creation of this movie, or that like. Trisha Cook is I I don't understand the relationship between Trisha Cook and Ethan Cohen it's I am like I am a simple married lady like all of this poly stuff is just way too complicated for me to understand logistically or spiritually or otherwise uh, <laughs> but I'm not
2: sure they would describe it as a polycule or that they would describe themselves as poly. I'm not, to be clear, saying that they definitely wouldn't, but I have not seen either of them use that word. Yes, their domestic arrangement
1: is too logistically complicated for me to understand. That is all I am saying. Um, And so before I knew sort of the origins of this movie, it came across to me as very sort of leering about its, like, queer female characters. Um... And sort of like, like lesbian sex isn't this hilarious? And I mean, it it does to a certain extent change that a little bit for me, knowing that Trisha Cook herself has had relationships, maybe is still continuing to have relationships with women. Again, I'm confused. Um, I'm old. Please forgive me. And I I think maybe this is me. This is it's entirely possible that this is me and being plunged back into that sort of era of just. Casual, persistent, nasty homophobia and sort of objectification of lesbians really felt incredibly sour to me, right? I mean, the fact that this is ostensibly a movie about a young woman's sexual awakening that also just like the goons are dispatched when one of them shoots the other because like he reveals that the two of them had sex at one point. I was just like, what? What is happening here? Um I the movie just I did not think either. Margaret Qualley or Geraldine Viswanathan was terribly convincing in this. They're certainly not convincing as, like, a slow burn couple at all. Um, I mean, they, they, their friendship makes no sense, right? Like, they don't make sense as people who would like each other. Um, and so the idea that this is supposed to be, like, this very passionate, hot, like, true love affair, which is sort of at the heart of the movie, just kind of went nowhere for me. I can totally see your argument for this becoming a kind of particular hangout movie, Sunny, but I would not voluntarily watch this movie again.
2: Interesting. Peter, what did you make of Drive Away Dolls? So my reaction was colored in part by talking to Alyssa after we saw the screening. And I was thinking about Alyssa's uh, response to her, her, her initial sense, especially sort of not knowing the origin, that this movie was in some ways sort of leering or sneering. Um, it's certainly, it's kind of pointedly cutesy let's say um uh at, at and in a it's way mannered and stylized there's there's that yes but the, it is um and in a way that reminds me an awful lot of previous coen brothers films and so Alyssa, actually um you said in our in our, our chat before this uh before we recorded that you're not a big coen brothers uh person i don't know which other coen brothers movies you've seen
1: i a bunch of them. I mean, like, I, I love Hail Caesar. That's a movie that I could literally just sort of put on and repeat. You know, like, I like Death of Stalin a lot. Um, Death of
2: Stalin is, is you know. not, uh, uh, d- they didn't direct it. but um, <laughs> Right. Uh, did, were they involved
1: in the screenwriting? Maybe? I
2: uh, don't you know. Was, was yeah, it Anushi no. at all? Um, I'm but,
1: sorry. Uh, My brain yeah, is broken. I don't know why right. those are two. I mean, like, I like Raising Arizona a lot. I mean, I like some of the Coen Brothers movies, but I wouldn't describe me. Like, the Coen Brothers have always felt to me like, there's just like there's a, there's a cult of the Cohen brothers, and I am just I am not an adherent of that particular church.
2: So so I I am, and yeah. this movie felt very much of a piece with Cohen brothers. Cohen Brothers' filmography, though I think it is weaker than pretty much anything that the brothers ever did together, um, but it really feels like four movies in particular are touchstones here. The one is Blood Simple. That's their first sort of like darkly comic noir set in Texas. Another is Arizona, the the sort of uh, wild Nicolas Cage kid kidnapping comedy. Uh, the uh, another is Fargo, you know, which is uh, you know the the north dakota kidnapping bleak whatever uh sort of super black comedy thing and then another is big lebowski and fargo you know sonny you mentioned the um the pair of kidnappers really resembles uh the all of the dream secret the sort of the hallucinogenic sequences here actually remind me of some of the same sort of thing in in um lebowski the Mm -hmm. black comic uh, crime uh, bits and the sort of um expressionistic filmmaking, especially in the opening bit, which I think is the best part of the movie, the first uh, eight or 10 minutes in the bar and outside of the bar with Pedro Pascal um, is I, I liked the movie kind of in that opening bit. And then I think it got weaker over time. Really seems like um, the one brother is drawing from the history of of the the Coen brothers work here and what they do, Alyssa, that is something that people that like their detractors or their people who don't get them or who find them difficult is they a big part of what they do is they sort of parody and stylistically exaggerate the caricature regional scenes. And you see this in Big Lebowski with L.A. You see this in Blood Simple with Texas. Uh, You see this in A Simple Man with, um, you know, sort of uh, with the particular kind of Midwestern culture that it takes place in. Uh, You certainly see it in Fargo uh, most prominently, I think. And it is their caricatures of those scenes are both loving and always kind of verging on mean-spirited even when they like the characters, even when they appreciate the scene. I mean, these guys grew up in Minnesota. Fargo is, you know, in, in that area. Of this, Fargo was very much uh, about a world that they knew and 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 understood um, personally. And it wasn't that they hated it. It's just that their view of the world is, well, people are kind of dipshits. And-
1: yeah, and I guess this didn't even feel like, I mean, I didn't even feel like I objected to like a parody of the like, East Coast lesbian bar scene. I sort of found the depiction of like, the two main lesbian characters to be just like, you know, I found them to be thinly drawn, but like, you know, like I was hanging out, like not in bars um, in 1998 because I was 14, but I was like hanging out in Provincetown with like members of my Gay Straight Alliance. And, you know, there was just like, there just didn't even seem to be any engagement with like what those kinds of enclaves are like, right? Like, it's like, oh, we have like a lesbian soccer team. Okay, like, I, you know, that's not that's not an exploration of a scene to me.
2: <laughs> so so to me, it felt like it felt like Cohen was doing the things that the Cohen brothers have done for a long time, but I think not doing it nearly as well as in previous movies. And it's a sort of a it's a, a little bit of a sneering look at a, a particular cultural scene set in a particular place and time. And as sneering is maybe a little bit too strong, but it's yeah, definitely. I think sneering is the wrong word. Not, I, I I
0: I don't think sneering is right. There there are characters who are sneered at in this film. the 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 uh, the religious senator uh, that is a a like if we if we want to talk about
2: ridiculous portrayals. That's the so of people. I, I totally agree there. It's it's a quirky and stylized without being particularly. It doesn't go out of its way to make a, a kind of positive, affirmative case for these characters because that's not what they do. And so I I think I find myself kind of somewhere in between the two of you, not so much bothered by the portrayal of, of the scene or the tone, but bothered by the, the kind of shallowness of it and I think the ineffectiveness of it all. In particular, I found Qualley and Viswanathan to be just not a- quite able to handle the, the Coen brothers' Or you know, style the Cohen brother in this case, style, uh patter. The it it just felt it felt forced in a way that it doesn't usually. And I went back and watched Fargo after this just to see if maybe that would sort of change my mind here. And and again, it was partly it's also just I think the dialogue here is not as good as in their best films is uh, you know as in a, uh, some of the the Cohen brothers previous work. Uh, and you can see that in the um, the Arliss and Flint subplot with uh, Joey Slotnick and C.J. Wilson as the pair of bad guys on the trail here, it just, it feels like it's really trying too hard. And what this reminded me of most was in some ways like a Coen Brothers movie, but in some ways this sort of wave of comic noir crime films that came out in the 1990s that were like sub-Cohen Brothers and sub-Quentin Tarantino, like Two Days in the Valley and Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag and a bunch of other stuff that I'm forgetting now, where you'd have a couple of these a year and they thought they were being sort of hip and cool and they just never had the kind of the art to them that, uh, that Tarantino and the Coens brought at, uh, during that period of time. And this, this just sort of felt like a kind of an echo of the Coen Brothers' best work in a way that didn't land with me.
0: I can see that. No, I, I I can I can totally see that. And maybe this is something that kind of fades away and does not become the cult classic because it is not quite as good. And I would I would tend to agree that's it's not it's not as good as *Raising Arizona* or *The Big Lebowski*. I don't think I do like this is not.
2: It's certainly not uh, as good as *Fargo*.
0: It's not a pantheon film, I don't think. But I, I I again I just I think this movie is more loving about that subculture than than either of you think. I think there's like a real enjoyment of it and appreciation of it Uh, but also like I I think I think the actresses do a great job with the dialogue that sequence at the beginning where Marion is is fending off the guy who is hitting on her and without just coming out and saying I'm a lesbian like I, I thought that was I thought that was a funny like little kind of subtle way to get at what were Obviously, some of the biases at the time, like why isn't why doesn't this woman want to go out with me? You know, I'm so confused. I'm a I'm an attractive man in an office setting. He she should be she should be into me. And like I just I, I I and I thought all of their I thought all of their scenes together were really nicely done. I thought they had good I thought they had good chemistry with each other in terms of the conversational dialogue. I don't know about the relationship the the heat like that sort of chemistry between them. But I thought they they made sense as friends to me. You know, a sort of a in a in an opposites attract sort of way, um, and I, I again I enjoyed the the two goons doing their riffs on like being a people person versus you know just being a a, a, a lunkhead beating people up for information. I thought I thought it was, that was all funny. I I I found it all I found it all very amusing. I, I will say I was the only person in the theater laughing out loud occasionally. So you know maybe of course there were only like three other people in the theater because nobody is going to see this movie. But uh, I, I don't know. I'm you know. I had a good time immersing myself in the lives of these two women. I think so. I chuckled a
2: few times, um, and I really enjoyed every single scene with Bill Camp, who steals the movie and Bill is, steals everything he's in. I I could watch a, a Curly movie based on this. Curly's Cars, coming soon. So what
0: do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Drive Away Dolls?
2: Alyssa.
1: Thumbs down in part for Criminal Waste of Coleman Domingo.
2: Peter. I wanted to like this more. Uh, sadly, thumbs down. Thumbs up. I I
0: enjoyed this film. I, I think people should check it out. And it will. And again, I am I, I'm very sure this will end up being a fairly sure. I'm fairly sure. Mostly, I'm pretty sure this will end up being a, a cult classic. Over the next year or so, here. All right, that is it for today's show. Many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sonny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday.